He said, it, the Bible, it, the Bible, remains astonishingly, remains an astonishingly accurate document and shows such remarkably modern understanding of ethnic and linguistic situations in the modern world, in spite of all of its complexity, that scholars never fail to be impressed with the knowledge of the subject. With that, if you'll turn with me again, like I said, to verse 10, or chapter 10, I'm going to attempt to read this and pray, and maybe I should pray first so that I can try to get all of these names correct. Father, I pray that you would do a work on my tongue this morning, God, that you would uh, help me to articulate these words. I just want to get um, your word right, Lord. I want us to, to hear you speaking to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. God, we know that there's a, a reason for why this is here, and we don't want to skip over it. We don't want to gloss over it. Father, we want to see the truths found within it and the purpose behind it, God, so that we may um, understand you and know you more and so that we can understand your purpose and will for our lives. Father, we love you and we praise you. And I ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. It says now in verse 1, this is the genealogy of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And the sons were born to them after the flood. The sons of Japheth were Gomer, Magog, Madai, Javan, Tubal, Meshech, and Tyrus. The sons of Gomer were Ashkenaz, Riphath, and Togamah. And the sons of Jovan were Elisha, Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodaim. And from these coastlands, people of the Gentiles were separated into their lands, everyone according to the language, according to their families, and into their nations. Now, there's more I'm going to read, but I just want to stop real quick. You're going to see three sections of distinction made here in regards to the genealogical record. And you have the, the three sons and their, and their, their, their uh, descendants being spoken. But in addition to naming these sons or these descendants and these, these grandsons, we're also told that the region or the geographical place in which they resided at as well. And, 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 and that's what verse 5 really is here in this section. And you're going to see that same thing repeated as we go on. And so in verse 6, it says, The sons of Ham were Cush, Miserium, Phut, and Canaan. And the sons of Cush were Sheba, Havilah, Sabath, Ramea, and Sabetchek. And the sons of Ramea, uh, Ramea were Sheba and Dedan. Cush begot Nimrod, and he, it says, began to be a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Therefore, it is said, like Nimrod, the mighty hunter before the Lord. And just so you know, that's not a compliment. We'll get to that. Uh, there are a lot of people who hunt that, that like to go, oh yeah, like Nimrod. You don't want to be a Nimrod. <laughs> And there's a reason why that, that name has certain connotations when, you, when you're called a Nimrod. But in verse 10, it says that the beginning of this kingdom, the beginning of his kingdom, of Nimrod's kingdom, was Babel, Eshrish, Akkad, and Kelneh in the land of Shinar. Verse 11, and from the land he went to Assyria and built Nineveh, Reboth, Ur, Kalah, and Rezin, between Nineveh and Kalah, that is, in the principal city. Miserium begot Ludim and, and, and Anim and um, Lehabim and Neftuim, uh, Pathrushim and Kalshrim, and from whom came the Philistines and the Kaphtorim. Canaan begot Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites 
the Amorites and the Girgashite, the Hivite, the Archites, and the Shinites, and the Arvadites, and the Shemarites, and the Hamathites. After the families of the Canaanites, after the families of the Canaanites were dispersed. That's a key verse. If you want to underline that, we'll come back to that. And the border of the Canaanites was from, so again, we're given their, their region or their geographic location as far as where they originally settled and then dispersed out from. And the border of the Canaanites was from Sidon as you go to Gerar as far as Gaza. Then you go to Sodom, Gomorrah, Adamah, and Zeboim as far as Lashish, or uh, Lasha. And these were the sons of Ham, according to their families, according to their languages in the land and in their nations. And the children were born also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber. And that's a title. I want, I'm pointing that out. It's different than the rest. And we'll come back to that too in, in verse 21. And it says that he is the brother of Japheth the elder. And the sons of Shem were Alam, Asher, Arphaxad, Lud, or Lud, and Aram. And the sons of Aram were Uz, Hul, Gether, and Mash. Arphaxad begot Salah, and Salah begot Eber. And Eber, um, and to Eber were born two sons. The name of one was uh, Peleg, and for in his day the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. And Joktan begot um, Almodad, um, Shalef, Harzmeth, and Jar, uh, Hadorim, Uzal, Dekla, uh, Obal, um, Abmel, Sheba, Ofer, Havila, and, and um, Jobad. And all of these were the sons of Joktan. And their dwelling place was from Mish, as you go to Safar, the mountains of the east. Again, a geographical location being given. And they were the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages. In the lands according to their nations. And then verse 32 is a reiteration or a, a, a reconfirmation of verse 1, where it says, These were the families of the sons of Noah according to the generations in their nations, and from these the nations were divided on the earth after the flood. Amen. <laughs> I know half of those weren't right, so you're. But I want to again point out as we begin to look at this in this, this first section of this genealogy here in verse 1 through 5, I want to point out that the purpose of this chapter, and this is where, where our attention needs to be focused, the purpose of this chapter is to explain how the earth was repopulated after the flood by the descendants of the sons of Noah. And this is told to us in verse 1, and again, like I said, reiterated or restated in verse 32. And from the genealogies of Noah, as you begin to break this down, there, uh, of Noah's three sons, in total there are 70 descendants recorded, which 70 original nations or tribes can be retraced, with 14 of them coming from Japheth, the oldest, 30 coming from Ham, and 26 coming from Shem. And in verses 2 through 5, if you look there, it's the genealogy of Japheth. In, in verses 6 through 20 is the genealogy of Ham. And then in verses 21 through 32 is the genealogy of Shem. And in light of this, we can see the reason for why this chapter is referred to by many scholars as the original table of nations, meaning that all people groups, all nations, all races can be traced back through this genealogical record and 
the geographical location from which they came from. Two have, both have to be, to be correct in order for them to be right. And, um, all, and, and what that means is, is all the world's people groups, all the language groups that, that are in the world today, and even those that have been lost, they can all be traced back to this genealogy. And with these genealogical records, God has established for us, like we've seen with Noah, a generational bridge from, Lo, from Noah to Lamech. God, with this genealogical record, has established for us really a roadmap. It's a roadmap that can be traced back to identify the origins of all men. So, if we believe the Bible to be true, then all other theories about the origin of man or about the origin of nations must be false. And believe me, there's many claims out there. Go type it in. There's websites devoted to that, to the origins of nations, to the origin of men, not just to where life began, but, but how we got here, how we dispersed. And some of them are whacked, but there are people who believe that. I mean, scientific minds that believe this stuff that has no basis in any kind of factual truth at all. But here God makes it specifically known to us. And, 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 and the point is, is God's left no room for guessing as he's given us this detailed record that leads us back to the very first man, who is Adam. And if you're wondering why, okay, you're saying, Sean, Pastor, why? It's here, it's in the Word of God, I understand the reasons behind it, but why? What's the big deal? Why is it so important? I understand that God's calling me to go, this is the truth and everything else there is, is a lie. But, but when, if you're wondering why God would go to such lengths to convey this to us, we need to know that God's desire, beyond a shadow of a doubt, is that he would know where we've originated from. I mean, that's something that we, even as Americans, as, as United States citizens that are made up of so many different nationalities, so to speak. You know, I'm, I'm originally of the Irish culture, and some of you are from very different. You trace your roots to certain things, and, 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 and God's gone to this great length for us to know, beyond a shadow of doubt, of where we've originated from and why we exist and this first chapter, this, this, these really the first 10 chapters of the book of, of Genesis is designed to show us this complete picture of where we originated from. Not only from one man and one woman, but from people groups and nations and, and, and as we all can trace back. And the reason for why is because, guys, what it proves to us or what it shows to us is that we've been purposefully created, designed. And when we realize, when we see these kinds of things and the, the detail that goes into this, when we realize that we have been purposefully created, then we must recognize the fact that we've been created for a specific purpose. You get that? Let me say that again. When we realize, when we understand that we've been purposefully created with intention, then we must recognize the fact that we've been created for a specific purpose. And God does not want us to be ignorant of these facts because the Bible tells us that one day we're going to be held accountable. We're going to be held accountable by our Creator as a created thing and required to give an account for what we've done in relationship to what we have been created for. And the fact of the matter is the Bible is clear in teaching us that we've been created for God's purposes. 
It says, for his good pleasure. And that plays itself out in, in many different avenues as we're all individually called to follow and worship and walk after God. But, but at the very least, it, all, it always means these things. We're created for God's purposes and, his good, and for his good pleasure. And, and I want to give you an example. Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, he concluded his ponderings about the vanities of life, which, which his, whole, his whole message really is, is the life which is vanity and the vanities of life really distract us from our design purpose, the book of Ecclesiastes. He, he, he concludes that book, his ponderings about the vanities of life and all of these distractions um, that, 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 that take us away from our divine purpose by establishing, he does so by establishing exactly what we as God's creation have been created to do. And in the last chapter of the book of Ecclesiastes, Solomon gives an exhortation. He exhorts us to remember our creator. Remember the creator. And he concludes his thoughts by saying in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verses 13 through 14, he says, let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. You guys know he says this. He says, fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the whole duty of man. He says, for God will bring every work as a reminder, every work into judgment, including every secret thing, whether good or evil. So, in order that we might not be ignorant of our origin and so that we may know that we have been created for a divine purpose, we first read about the sons of Japheth in verses 1 through 4, 2, 4. And, and when we look at Japheth, what you see is that in total, like I mentioned, 14 nations or tribes can be traced back through the descendants of Japheth. And for the sake of time, as we go through this, I'm only going to highlight a few from each one of the sons of Noah. Some, the ones that really play key significant roles really into the time and into our lives today. There's not, that's not to say that there isn't value in each one and studying each one out. There is. I'm just going just gonna to key in on a few. And um, because verse 5 declares that these descendants are the coastland peoples of the Gentile, first thing that we need to see is that we're being given information that help us identifies, to identify what nations grew up out of Japheth's descendants. For example... And what that means is a name is only a name, uh, the names are only valuable when you understand where they were at geographically speaking and what people groups that might be today. And we know. And that's what I want to talk about. So, as we look at what nations grew out from Japheth descendants, and some of the ones I want to highlight, I want to point out that Germany can be traced back to Gomer. Not just biblically, but in an, in an anthropological, anthropological kind of way. And there's actually a, a, a deeper study called ethnology um, that's, that's out there. And I think that's how you pronounce it, that, that specifically keys in on these kinds of things. And so these scientists and others have, have, have traced that back to, 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 to Gomer, geographically speaking. Again, we know that Russia is traced back to Magog. And if you are studied any kind of end times prophecy, that name should be, oh, I've heard that before. Magog in Russia. The Medes and the Persians, which is modern-day Turkey, has been traced back to the son of Medai. Greece can be traced back to Javan, and, and Turkey um, 
uh, is traced back to Togomar, Togoma. And, and, and even though there's not a lot of scripture throughout the Bible that's devoted to these descendants of Japheth, we see that, that when they are mentioned, it's always in one context. And this is pretty unique. When we see these families or these sons or these nations re-mentioned in Scripture, it's always in the prophetic books of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of Revelation. Always, every time, without fail. And in light of this, it becomes clear that in the end times, the times that you and I are living in today, that these tribes or these nations, the descendants of Japheth, they're going to have the greatest influence and effect on the events that are going around or taking place in our time today. So it's no surprise that when you and I look to the global scene, that these specific nations that I mentioned, they're getting a lot of attention, aren't they? In fact, Turkey, who is traced back to Togoma, has been getting a lot of attention in light of that recent failed coup that was led by the Turkish military against his own president, who's named Recep Tayyip Egoran, who, as a result of that failed coup attempt, if you guys have been following this at all, what he's done is he's um, brought the entire nation under a martial law for, I, I can't remember the exact amount of time, I think it's like six months, I might be wrong, but he's declared martial law and extended uh, a time of martial law, and it's kind of elevated him in power to more of a dictatorial, dictatorial position. And, and Turkey is a democracy. They've had 12 presidents through their span of democracy and, and, and up until um, this current president. Well, things are rapidly changing in that country right now. And, and in fact, uh, the politicians and pundits that you hear on the news and they're studying this out, they say that Turkey's going to end up much like Egypt has. Because what we know is, is that this president is, is, is a Muslim. And not only is he a Muslim, he's a radical. And, and, his, and he would, they say, desire to institute Sharia law throughout the land of Turkey. This was a democracy. Not exactly like the United States, but it was a free country. And, and things have changed overnight. And, and, and really, when you look at Scripture, guys... Prophetically speaking, in the end times, and that's the cool thing that we get to be here right now today in this passage of Scripture, and I can talk about it, because this appears to be a step, a step towards the fulfillment of a prophecy that's given in Ezekiel chapter 38, which is a section of Scripture that, that really is a dual prophecy. It prophesies and describes the return of the, the, the Jewish nation after it was um, removed from the land, which we know that took place in, in, in 1948. So that part of that prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 38 has already come to pass. But in addition to that, Ezekiel 38 also speaks of, by name, the house of Togoma. In conjunction with a war, and again, Togoma is traced back to Turkey. It's in conjunction, according to Ezekiel chapter 38, with a war that culminates in the destruction of the invading armies of Israel saying that this, these descendants, this nation, this ancient nation, who is now modern-day Turkey, will be a part of it. And so you think about, okay, rising up against Turkey, what would have to happen? Obviously, they would have to become an enemy of Turkey and move away from a democracy of free people where we see Islam really rising its head against 
against the nation of Israel for years now. And, and you see that, that stage being set. As a matter of fact, when you study out Old Testament prophecy, um, what you begin to see is, is that Turkey's the last player to take the scene. And Bible scholars that, that study end-time stuff have been looking for Turkey. And actually, it wasn't just Turkey. It was Syria and Damascus. Well, what, what happened in just the last few months was Syria and Damascus. And so the only one left, if you will, to enter the stage to, to, to play out this final scene that's going to take place in, in God's end times events and how he all says it's to take place, the only one left was Turkey. And when you think about that, it should give you chills. And actually, it should cause you to look up because your redemption draws near and the Lord's coming back. Now, I wish I had time this morning to go more into this, and I just don't, but if you wish to know more about this specific prophecy as it relates to what's going on in Turkey, I would suggest you go to my home church that we got sent out from. Um, our pastor there is Pastor Steve. He's a brilliant when it comes to eschatology and end times um, prophecy, and he recently did a study. The, the, the website, you can look it up, type in Calvary Chapel Tri-Cities. And um, go to their website and click the media button. And on the media button, there's going to be a drop down that says recent studies. And you're going to open up the recent studies from Sunday morning. And, and you want to listen to the study that was, that was put out or done on Sunday morning of July 24th, 2016. That's entitled Ezekiel in Turkey. It's an hour and 10 minutes long, but it is phenomenal. And it, it'll, it'll blow your mind and it will, you will walk around looking up. Not because you're playing Pokemon Go, but because you're looking for Jesus. It's happening before us. And, that, and that's part of the other reason is because God wants us, his kids, to know how it's all going to play out and to know these things. And that's part of this, this record. It's all tied to, to prophetic things. So as we read on, and I'm, I, can't, I can't reread all these names, guys. I just can't do it. So I'm not going to go exactly verse by verse. I'm going to do it section by section. But if you look to verse 6, we're then told about the son's of Ham. Um, and in total, 30 descendants are mentioned, giving us 30 more tribes or nations that can be traced back to the sons of Ham through Noah. And when we consider these descendants of Ham, we must look also back to chapter 9, where we were at last week. And, and, and I didn't really go through these verses and because and I, I, I knew it would kind of touch on them this week. But in verses 18 through 27, it, it gives this account. It's kind of a strange account of a time when Noah, after the flood, we're not told when or how long, but Noah had planted a vineyard, harvested the grapes, made wine, and then got so drunk that he passed out naked in his tent. And lots of people go, what is that all about? Well, it's just, it's just to show us, it's just to reveal to us that even though Noah was perfect in all of his generations, a man who had found grace in the eyes of God, that even after the flood, Noah was still had a, 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 a dark black heart like ours. He was a sinner. That was it. But the, the important thing I want to point out to you is that when all this took place, what happened was is that, that Noah's son, Ham, entered his father's tent, saw his nakedness, and then went and told his two brothers who were outside. And people get really weird with that. All that simply means is, is that the um, Bible tells us that love covers a multitude of sin. And that doesn't mean that we hide sin, but we protect people. And we, we call them out on their sin, but we, we hide, we, we, we protect them. We shelter them. And, and, and Noah's son, Ham, didn't do that. As a matter of fact, he went right outside, told his two brothers, kind of like, ha-ha, dad's drunk and naked. 
come check it out. You know, he was, he was mocking his father. It was disrespect, disrespectful. He was revealing his sin. And, and it just revealed even the heart of Ham. And, and we know that when we read this, that um, Ham, as a result, was cursed. And there was a curse spoken against Ham in verse 25, which says that Ham, the father of the Canaanites, would be a servant of servants, meaning the lowest of the low, and he would serve the sons of Shem. And we know, um, I'm going to kind of jump ahead, but the, the descendants of Shem, uh, one of the descendants of Shem's were Eber through Peleg, and that leads us to, to Abraham. And of course, Abraham was the father of the Jewish people, the Hebrews. And, and so as we trace that out and look at that, we know that the children of Israel, when they were brought from Egyptian bondage and into the promised land, which was also called what? The promised land is called the what? The land of the Canaanites, the Canaan, the land of Canaan. That the Canaanites who were there when the Hebrew people came in, that they were dispersed, just like verse 18 said they were or would be, and tells us that they became the servants of the Hebrew people. Yet there, there came a time when Many others of the descendants of Ham were told that rose up in opposition to the, shun, to the sons of Shem, to the Hebrew people, nations who rebelled against God just like Ham had. In fact, these nations who came from the descendants of Ham brought great trouble to the nation of Israel before the coming of the Messiah. Nations like the Philistines, one of the ones that the, the Hebrew people left in the land, that was a constant thorn in their side, but also the Assyrians and the Babylonians. And as we look at this list of Ham's descendants, I want to draw your attention to two things. It's these, it's these, these uh, statements that are made. First in verse 8, where it says that we're told that Nimrod, the son of Cush, was one who began to be a mighty one on the earth. And then in verse 9, it goes on to say a second statement about him, saying that he was a mighty hunter before the Lord. Now, in order to see the importance of these two statements... We need, to, and we need to understand that, that, that some of the things that they're referring to. And it's important to know that um, Nimrod's name literally means firm. But more specifically, not just firm, but rebellious. Kind of like a, a donkey that doesn't want to move. Rebellious, firm, resistant, stiff-necked, hard-hearted. And so when we're being told that Nimrod began to be a mighty one on the earth, it's an explanation of his position of his authority, of his power, in that he, as a conquering ruler, who according to verses 10 and 12, had a kingdom not only in the land of Shinar, but then he began to expand his kingdom and his land into Assyria, is what it says. And he built great cities like the city of Nineveh. In other words, we, we also have a, a historical uh, description of, of the city of Nineveh in relationship to Jonah, and we know what they were like, and they were, they, that, that um, we know that these nations that we're talking about under Nimrod's rule or in Nimrod's kingdom were, were nations or people who were typically noted or uh, associated with rebellion against God. Um, and when we get to chapter 11, we read of the count of the Tower of Babel, which was in the land of Shinar, the kingdom of Nimrod. A land under his control. And it becomes that Nimrod was a man who was in opposition to God. And that's why people say don't be a Nimrod. Because what you're doing is you're just being in, in opposition really to God. So when we see that he is described in verse 9 as this mighty hunter before the Lord, it's not because he was, 
he was like a, a Gaston, you know, and he could hunt all kinds of animals. Rather, it was because he was a hunter of men's souls, a hunter before the Lord, a hunter of men's souls as he captured them and led them away from the will of God and into rebellion against God. And, and with this in mind, if we again to look to verse 10, where it tells us that the beginning of Nimrod's kingdom was the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, that would be really his capital city, and then he took also control of the land of Assyria, and we see that Nimrod's kingdom then encompassed what would become later not only two of the most um, ruthless people groups who ever live, um, but very powerful nations of brutal people, the Assyrians and the Babylonians, both of which, which would rise up, we know, against the nation of Israel and take God's people captive. The Assyrians in 722 B.C. and the Babylonians in 586 B.C. Now, uh, before we move onto Shem's descendants, I want to point out that many Bible scholars, Bible scholars, um, when they look to Nimrod, they say he's a prototype of the Antichrist. Uh, 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 a, a prototype of the Antichrist who is to end, uh, that is who will rise up in these last days. And they make this comparison by pointing out the fact, like they, like the Antichrist who is to come, Nimrod sought to make a one-world government with his conquering and his expansion, and especially through the Assyrian and Babylonian empires that followed after him, there was truly this world domination that was in the hearts and the minds of Nimrod and his descendants. And not only a one world government, but also a one world religion. And we see that uh, uh, not only a one world religion, but a one world religion that would rise up in opposition against God. And this is exampled to us when we get to chapter 11 with the Tower of Babel. In light of this, we see that Nimrod was a type of an antichrist. And when we consider, remember, these guys are all mentioned in the book of Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the book of Revelation in regards to end time stuff. When we look to the book of Revelation, chapter 17 and 18, which prophetically details and accounts the antichrist who will rise up in the last days, we see that he is going to lead also many nations, a league of ten nations specifically, to join together with him as one rebellious people who will shake their fists then in the face of God and seek, it says, to be intox- become intoxicated with the blood of God's people. And this joining together of the nations, this is really kind of gets kind of creepy in a sense, but these, these, these joining together of these nations who are anti-God in their heart are connected to Nimrod and his kingdom, considering that they are called in the book of Revelation this, Mystery Babylon, the great and mother of all harlots and the abominations of the earth. Now, in the final verses, and we're going to wrap this up because of this, the second Tuesday of every month or Sunday of every month, we have an extended time of worship at the inn. And it's an opportunity for you guys to come forward, and some of the leaders in the church are going to come up into these front chairs, and you're going to have an opportunity to be prayed for. And, and we, we do that regularly, but, but we, we do that because the Bible talks about congregational prayer. The Bible teaches that it's a wonderful thing, and that if there's something going on in our lives, that we should come together and, and, and lift up our request to the Lord. And really, it's just a caring for one another and an opportunity to do that. And that really ties together with what we're talking about here today. And I'm going to close by bringing that all together. But in these last verses, in verses 21 through 32, we read about the, the sons of Shem. And, and 26 of his descendants are listed here. They're mentioned. 
And out of all of them, one is separated from the rest. And in verse 21, if you look there, it tells us that Shem was the father of all the children of, again, Eber. And I already kind of spoke to what that was about. And when we read this, we need to understand that it's more than just a point of record, considering it's really a title that's given to Shem to distinguish him from the rest of Noah's sons. And when we look forward to Genesis chapter 12, and also into 1 Chronicles chapter 1, where there's again a genealogical record that is similar to this, we find out that Abraham, who was the father of the Hebrews, is a direct descendant of, of Eber. So the title given here to Shem, the father of all children, or the father of all the children of Eber, is really a, a title of honor that connects Shem's, or Shem to God's special chosen people, the Hebrews. But more importantly, guys, more importantly, what is being established to us here is not just the line from which the Hebrews came from, but the line from which the Messiah came from. And, he's, and through this line, through the line of Shem, the Messiah is able to be tracked back all the way back to Adam. And that's significant theologically speaking because we know not only was Jesus com completely God, fully God, we also know that he was what? Fully man. And Luke points this out in this uninterrupted genealogical count in Luke chapter 3, and by it he identifies the humanity of Jesus alongside the divinity of Jesus, pointing out to us that Jesus, our Savior, was fully God and fully man. The worship team wants to come up, and, and we can prepare to, 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 to pray together. I want to I reiterate that with these genealogical records, guys, remember, God has established for us a clear roadmap. A clear roadmap that can trace us back or, or, or that can be traced back to the origin of all men, of all nations, of all people groups, of all languages. And he has left us this generational record leading us back to the very first man, Adam, so that we might understand that our God desires for us to know beyond a shadow of a doubt that, that he be, desires for us to know where we originated from and why we exist. As a matter of fact, guys, think about it. Every unbeliever out there is searching for this, the answers to the questions. Deep down they are. Who am I? Where did I come from? Why do I exist? What's my purpose? But guys, because we know this, because we realize this, because we've been re we realize through these things that we've been purposely, purposefully created, we must then acknowledge the fact that we've been created for a purpose. In addition to this, guys, the other thing that this chapter reveals to us is, is that this knowledge that we come from one man reminds us of the fact that we're all related. We're all related. You know, I, I, we, we've had the blessing to be foreign exchange parents to foreign exchange students. And I say parents because Berlin and, and others who've come, Natalia... We see them as our daughter, and we're going to be getting a new one, and, and, and a 15-year-old boy, his name's Gonzalo, and, and I hope he, we want to treat him like our son, and we want him to receive us or accept us in time as his international parents. But guys, when we talk about these kind of things, it's not so far off because we all come from one man. We're all related. And this knowledge that, that all human people, even those who are of a different nationality or a different culture... Um, or different identities, that, that we're all the same origin, that means we have all the same dignity, and that we all belong in the same world. And since our God has a heart for the world, you know what that means? We must also have a heart for the people who are in this world. 
And this biblical mentality really undercuts all human diversiveness based upon nationality, culture, and race that we are so inclined to do, where we divide and when we separate ourselves. In God's kingdom, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female. We're all one. That's the way that God originally designed it. That's how he made it. And that's the eyes that we have to look through it. See, we don't have the luxury of caring, about, uh, of caring nothing about the rest of the world. We're cousins, if you will, at the very least. And so we must be concerned about their needs. We must be concerned about their hopes, their dreams, their problems, their family struggles, their successes, and their failures. Because you know what? They're really not much different than all of ours. And we care for one another, and we support one another, and we encourage one another. And as a church, we get to practice that as we, as we, as we live with one another. And, and, and that's the awesome thing about prayer and praying together as we bear our hearts together before the Lord and it connects us. And so as we worship the Lord with the time that we have left, I would encourage you as the guys come forward and Justin leads us in worship with the worship team to come and receive prayer. Go before God together so that we can be connected again and practice that in a way where we lovingly care for one another as we come to our Lord and Savior. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would bless this time. Lord, may you receive our prayers and may we continue to worship you in spirit and truth. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.